All right, well, I'm going to do what I've been told to do now. All week, God has been telling me to do this. So, again, good morning. Uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I just love it, man. I really love the book of Acts, but I never really imagined teaching through it, and it's been just exciting to teach through like a historical narrative. It's just really neat to to see how the church came about and what it did in the early years and all that. So take your Bibles and turn right over to Acts 14. Acts 14, that's where we're going to be today, Acts chapter 14. Turn right over there. Um, last week we studied verses 19 and 20. We didn't get very far. We're not going to get very far today either. But we looked at verses 19 to 20 while Paul, just a refresher while Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel in the Galatian city called Lystra. Unbelieving Jews came down from Pisidian Antioch, a couple of cities that were up north and from Iconium and uh, they created a bunch of trouble for them as they were preaching down in this other city. They persuaded the crowds, the people that were listening to Paul and Barnabas, more particularly Paul because he was the head preacher guy. They convinced these people to turn against them and the crowd became violent and ended up stoning Paul, throwing rocks at him and, and trying to kill him uh, through that. And the crowd thought that Paul was dead. I mean, they just pulverized him with rocks and he obviously was unconscious. They thought he was dead and they dragged his body outside the city gates and left him out there to die. And the new Christians, those who had heard the gospel through Paul preaching in Lystra in the previous weeks or months, we don't know how long he was there, uh, these new converts or new Christians, they'd listened to Paul, they gathered around him and um, you know, all of a sudden he stood up and uh, definitely was injured, no doubt, but stood up and went right back into Lystra, right back into the city where he'd just about been killed. And he and Barnabas ended up staying the night there and probably went back to the Agora and preached or at least recuperated, we don't know, Luke didn't give us the details, but they went back into the city and stayed the night and on the following day, we learned that they began the journey or a journey to a town called Derby or Derbe, and, uh, which was uh, some distance from there. And that's where we pick up in the story, in the historical or biblical narrative. We're going to begin at verse, uh, looks like, 21. So I'll pray one more time and we'll get to work. Are you down? Are you with me? Are you awake? Are you alert? You got your writing stuff? You got your phone on mute? You got your Bible there? All right. Let me pray. Father, um, one more time, Lord, we want to lift up this service to you, and more particularly this moment where the word is preached, and I think that this is kind of the corner piece of the worship service in any church, not because I'm important, but because the preaching of your word is important. Um, for those who hear it, it is a matter of life and death. And uh, it's a serious thing, Lord. I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive your word today and what you have for us. Um, God, we will understand nothing. We'll get nowhere. We'll experience no change in our lives unless the Holy Spirit does his marvelous, miraculous work. We pray for that today, Lord. Holy Spirit, have your way. And uh, we give up this whole time to you, Lord. And... Uh, my big prayer is that you would be glorified during it, that you would be pleased with your word preached. And um, we love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. 
21, 14, 21, Acts 14, 21. It reads, when they had preached the gospel to that city, Luke is speaking of Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Okay? Now let's begin with just a little background on Derby, right? Luke includes almost no information about this particular city, this place. And I think it's good to get a little background, to get a little history, to understand what kind of environment they were in and what was happening and taking place. Derby was southeast of Lystra. Derby was, and this is weird because everyone has different views, but Derby was 40, 60, or 90 miles away from Lystra, depending on which scholar you read. <laughs> Boy, we're united on the cross, we're united on Jesus as God and all these things, but nobody can figure out where exactly this city was. Apparently it's no longer there, I don't know. Um, but it was at least 40 miles away and at most 90 miles away from Lystra. So, Lystra. so it was a pretty far place. It was far from where Paul and Barnabas had previously been and been preaching the gospel. And we keep in mind that Paul was injured. And so they either traveled by horse or not, probably not horse. That was really for dignitaries and probably not even donkey because that was for dignitaries. Probably by foot. So 40 miles... Uh, in an injured state would have been miserable. 60, increasingly miserable. 90, I'm not taking the trip, right? I mean, really? Yeah. Massive distance. Very, very far. And Derby was located along the Via Sebasti. I'm not even sure how to pronounce that, which is called the main Roman highway. There was this main thoroughfare the Romans had sort of carved out that went in between these cities. And Derby was located on that primary Roman highway, the Via Sebaster, whatever. Paul and Barnabas would have passed through other cities on their way to Derby, like Dallasandos and Codilesos and Pusala and Elystra and Loranda. Um, Bunch of strange names. Spell check was going crazy in my computer. It's not familiar with any of those. But these are cities that they would have passed through. And being that they were church planting missionaries, um, I think it's fair to assume that they probably stopped off and preached in those places too. They may have just passed right through them, but these guys were on mission, you know, and they may have, these were Galatian cities, if you will, and so they may have stopped and done their work in those places as well. We don't know, but it could be what opportunities these were, right? seems like Paul and Barnabas were the kind of guys that took every opportunity to get the gospel out there. Derby was a city of the Roman province of Asia, located in the district of Lycaonia in the province of Galatia. As I said, Galatia was kind of like the state. Lycaonia was kind of like the county and then Derby was one of the cities in the county like Modesto and Stanislaus Stockton and San Joaquin. Now the scriptures seem to indicate that Paul visited Derby during his second and third missionary journeys as well. There's some reference to this place later on in, in Acts and, and I believe in uh, one or two of his epistles. And so this was a city that he went to a couple of times, probably three times or so. Um, during his third missionary journey, Paul had a lot of companions, many, many companions that went out on this journey with him, or he picked them up along the way. One of them was a guy named Gaius, 
And he was from Derby. We read that in Acts 24. He was probably a convert uh, through this particular moment of ministry and ended up following Paul later on on his third journey. Very interesting. What did Paul and Barnabas, according to the text, do while in Derby? Uh, the text is very simple. Um, uh, it, you know, it just it's very straightforward. It doesn't give a lot of detail. It just simply says they preached the gospel. You see it there in your Bible. They preached the gospel, and I want to take a little bit of time just to communicate to you, just to articulate, just to define what the gospel is. Um, you know, don't think because you've been a Christian for 20 years, oh, here we go, i got to hear the basics again. Friend, if you don't keep hearing the basics, it's unbelievable what happens. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over. So I want to take some time just to illustrate what it is, define what it is according to Scripture, what is the gospel, right? We've all heard that term over and over and over. you got gospel singers and gospel preachers and gospel-centered churches and what have you. The word gospel, as many of us know and understand, just simply means good news. The central message of the Bible is the gospel or the good news, which is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 provides a very succinct description of the gospel, a nice clear definition of it. It simply says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's your succinct, simplistic definition of the gospel. It's basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of the gospel or the finished work of Jesus Christ? We know what it is, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What is the purpose of this good news? What, uh, what is the main driving purpose of it, if you will? I will say it as simple as I can. The purpose of the gospel or finished work of Jesus Christ is, very simply put, redemption. Redemption. The whole world, you must understand how the gospel is relevant to us and to the world, but understanding this helps to understand why we need redemption. The whole world has been thrust into sin, first by Adam and Eve and now by humanity. Every man, woman, and child is a sinner. All of creation groans under the weight of our sin. Jesus was sent to begin the process of redeeming all of creation. Okay, we think that he just came to save sinners, but he actually came to begin the process of doing that and redeeming all of creation, removing creation from under the bondage of sin and restoring it back to the Father. In his first visit 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, a part of this redemption, he came to redeem sinners. He came to redeem people. The Bible refers to this, these people, those who received this redemption, those who he came and died for and all this, the Bible refers to them as the elect. The elect are a grand multitude that no one can number but God. Revelation 7, 9. We can't count them. There's just too many heads. The pews are full. He came to redeem people on his first trip. The elect... The chosen people of God, sinners. 
In his second or future visit, Jesus Christ will come to redeem the rest of creation by conquering all of his enemies, the unrepentant, principalities, the devil, and by establishing his kingdom, rule, and peace on earth. And some say that there's a thousand year period and then there's a pause and then it goes into the eternal state. And then some just say when he returns, it's just full-blown eternal state. It's debatable. There's truths on both sides that support it. But we know for a fact that when he comes back, justice will be served. He will conquer his enemies and he will establish his rule and reign. He will do what we call redeem creation. He will remove it from out from under the sin of man. And it's going to be a glorious and spectacular thing. I like how John Piper described, he's somebody I appreciate. I don't believe everything he says, but you don't believe everything I say. So and that's probably good. I like how John Piper described the gospel in a sentence. He said, The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. I love that. You get the idea that he came and he died on a cross and he paid for our sin debt and he rose again, securing our salvation and a future resurrection, but he also overcame all of his enemies at Calvary. He really did. He'll come back and finalize that in his second visit, but to some degree that's what he did. I think it says in Colossians that he defeated and put to shame the principalities and all authorities, visible and invisible. Very interesting. And so we've kind of covered what the gospel is and what the purpose of it is, redemption of creation, people, and everything else. Now, how does the gospel work? How does the gospel work? When the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit, okay? When it is applied by the third person of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and received by faith, the recipient will receive many things. We're talking about what the gospel accomplishes for a person now, that person of faith, that person of repentance and faith, okay? And there are immediate things that this person, this recipient will receive. There are daily things or continual things that this person will receive. And there are future things out there. Carrot on a string. They're coming. We're going to get there. There are future things, things. So you have immediate, daily, and future. Immediate things. What does the person who receives the gospel receive? First, forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Did you hear how I said the entire world has been plunged into sin through humanity, through people? And that every man, woman, and child is a sinner. Every man, woman, and child is a lawbreaker. You know you've lied? Guess what? That's a commandment. You know that you've probably stolen, oh, I would never steal. How many pencils have you taken from your workplace? Oh, but that's just so trivial. Bull, somebody paid for those pencils. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Oh, my mom. Have you ever murdered someone physically? Maybe not. Have you ever thought, man, I'd like to kill him? Same thing. Every person is a sinner. Every 
person has broken God's laws, his decrees. Every person needs to be forgiven. Why? Because God is perfect, righteous, and holy, and he created you for the purpose of glorifying him and enjoying him forever, but none of that's taking place because you're a sinner. Through your sin, you show God, I hate you. So guess what you need real bad? Forgiveness. You need to be forgiven by a holy, perfect God who created you for a purpose. You need forgiveness so bad. And the gospel, faith in the gospel accomplishes that. It brings forgiveness of sin. The slate is wiped clean. The recipient, secondly, the recipient will receive peace with God. Oh, you are walking around doing your job and doing what you do, and maybe you got a, a girlfriend and a wife and a family, and you're enjoying some level of peace and blessing, and you got a house and a roof over your head, and, and you got all what you perceive to be peace, 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 but guess what? You are at war with God. You do not have peace with Him. Which means you truly do not have peace down here on earth. You think you do. You're doing all that you can to generate some form of peace. To have some level of peace. To be at peace with people and neighbors and spouses and all that. But you just don't have the true peace that only comes through God. You need to be at peace with God first. And then you can truly experience peace down at this level. Lasting peace. You will receive, the person who repents and believes, the gospel will receive peace with God. I tell you, that's a starting point. You need your sins forgiven and you need to have peace with God. Only until your sins are forgiven can you have peace with God. The recipient will receive the righteousness of Christ. Believe the gospel, the recipient will receive the righteousness of Christ. Guess what? You don't have any, you don't have even a mild form of righteousness. You don't have half a percent of righteousness. The sinner who does not believe in Jesus Christ has no righteousness of their own. None. Not even a spot, not even a dot. Doesn't matter how much you do, doesn't matter how many good things you do, how kind you are, how nice you are, how respectful you are, how well... You obey God's commandments. No matter what, none of that stuff is producing any bit of righteousness. You have zero righteousness. Why? Because you're a sinner. You are completely infected with sin. Even though you do nice things and kind things at times and you can smile once in a while and treat people with dignity and respect, you're still a sinner in the eyes of God. You don't have peace with Him and you don't have any righteousness. So how does the gospel work? Faith in the gospel brings the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness comes through him because he obeyed the law perfectly. We talked about it earlier in family time. He is the only one who has ever obeyed and will ever obey the law perfectly. Never sinned. I know you're saying, how could that be? I'll tell you how it could be because he was God. Men have been trying to, to, to live perfectly and righteous since the beginning. And have always fallen short, no matter how good they are. No matter how good they get at religion or any of these other things. You need a foreign righteousness. That person receives a righteousness from Christ. It's called imputation. He takes your sin upon him. 
And he transfers his righteousness to you. And you become clothed in his righteousness. That's something that you get. The recipient will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes the sinner's, the repentant sinner's body his abode. His home, his place, his dwelling place. He comes and lives in that person, the recipient. And he helps that person to, um, I guess the next point, the recipient will receive resurrection power to live from God. That Holy Spirit comes and gets inside of that person and helps them and, and even causes them, despite that person at times, to live for God, to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. He guides you. He leads you. Jesus said, I'll send the helper. That helper is the Holy Spirit. He comes and he makes the recipient his abode and he lives in that person and helps that person to obey God and leads that person to obey God and gives that person joy in all these things, affirmation and all these things. Wonderful. The recipient will receive God as their father and adoption into his family, which we call the church. Did you hear that? What a tremendous hope that is for some. Especially for somebody like me who came from a broken home. No concept of what a father should really be. Some of you may have had it with a mother or what have you. But faith in the gospel brings adoption. You are joined with as a beloved son or daughter into the family of God, the church. It's not a perfect family, although our Father is perfect. Maybe what some of you need and what most recipients need is a perfect Father. Because your Father here wasn't. He just did things stupid and blew it. But what a tremendous blessing it is to be received by God as Father and adopted into His family, the church... The recipient will also receive the joy of salvation. This is a joy that transcends all understanding. It's incredible. I, I can't even explain it. You just have this joy, and it's, it's like immovable. There are, you know, yeah, happiness, whatever. Is there a difference between them? There can be. But you have this joy that the Holy Spirit brings. And, and that joy... It's, it can sustain you through the most difficult things in life. You, we suffer loss. We suffer illness, sickness, tragedy. In some parts of the world, genocide. I mean, it's just unbelievable what happens in the world. It's a violent, mean, and nasty world. And we're dying every day and we lose our loved ones. And somehow, the joy of salvation is just so powerful and so amazing that it sustains us even through these things. And there's that peace that transcends all understanding as well. But the joy of salvation is marvelous. And when someone repents and believes in the gospel, they receive that joy. <laughs> it's just amazing, right? You remember it when you first believed what it was like? Man, it's just incredible. And that continues and continues. Now, what about daily things? Those are immediate things, just a handful. I mean, there's a zillion. Daily things. Even though the recipient will continue to stumble and sin on occasion, he or she will receive grace and mercy from God continued. It's not a one-time deal. 
God's grace is so amazing that it washes over all your sin and removes those things. And guess what? When you continue to sin, act like a buffoon, do dumb things, His grace is there. His mercies are new every day. It's not a one-time thing where you have all this grace and mercy, then you start blowing it again on day two after you've been saved, which usually it's day, minute six, you know, we just start blowing it. You know, we're still sinners. We still wrestle with these. See, the point is that we're wrestling with them. Now, we didn't wrestle with them before. We didn't care. But his grace and his mercy sustains us, and his mercies are new every day. Every day he pours out his grace on his children washing them, cleansing them moment by moment, restoring them, empowering them. Even though you're still wrestling with sin in these things and stumble on occasion and all these things and it's difficult and it's hard, grace and mercy is there. What's that wonderful text that says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Wow. Another thing that Daily, the recipient will receive is sanctification. Kind of a weird word that we're not all familiar with. Sanctification, which basically means transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. God is at work in that recipient person. From the moment they believe, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to change them. And throughout their life, that person is sanctified and transformed. God is making that recipient into the image of His Son. It's wonderful. Even though life is difficult and we stumble and all these things, God is teaching us and He's transforming us. This is one of the biggest misconceptions out there in the world towards the church that, man, once a person is saved, they're just perfect and Christians walk around acting like they're perfect all the time and all that. Are you kidding me? No, we're being sanctified. Even when we sin, God takes those experiences and our stupidity and foolishness and uses it to sanctify and to train us, to correct us, to transform us. Man, it's like from the minute you believe, you're in school. You don't graduate until you die. What kind of plan is that? It's the best one. Daily things. What? Daily mercy, daily grace, daily love and fellowship and companionship from God. Daily sanctification and transformation in the image of Jesus Christ. He is changing that person moment by moment, day by day, minute by minute. Sometimes it seems like he's doing these grand, marvelous works and, and we can sense it all and see it all. And sometimes we sense that it just, we feel like nothing's going on. Usually when you don't think anything's going on, that's when he's doing his most marvelous work. So immediate and daily things. And how about future things? The recipient will receive. They've received these other things. They will receive a glorified body when he or she dies and passes into the next life. How many of you are just not all that happy with your body? Nobody's putting their hand up, but I would imagine. Yeah, I'm not too thrilled with mine. Just gets larger in some areas and more hairy and hair coming out the ear and the nose and I ache all the time. Every day I wake up and I got this weird like pinched nerve in my neck and I, you know people talk to me I'm like I got to turn my whole body to look at them like I got a two by four strapped to me. You know you know what I'm saying. We hurt, we ache, we sin, our body craves things that you know dishonor the Lord and sometimes we engage in those things. These bodies are falling apart, man. Every person dies. What is death? It is the punishment for sin. 
We are dying every day. Some of us quicker than others. But the recipient of the gospel will receive a glorified body when he or she dies and passes into the next life. You've got a body that's just, it's just prepared for worship. It's not falling apart anymore. I'll have the abs I've always wanted. I'm not even sure what abs would do for me in the kingdom of heaven, right? You're not going to show them off. Hey, look. Because Simon Peter's yoked, you know, and you're going to be like, oh, okay, my bad. I don't know. The recipient will receive the Lord's presence and the kingdom of heaven. What does it say in the scripture when that believer, that person who trusts the gospel, what does it say happens when they breathe their last breath? They immediately go into the presence of the Lord. We're talking about Jesus Christ. And there is so much debate about whether they go to heaven or not there. I firmly believe they do. I believe there's something else coming too, but they go to be in the Lord's presence. That person whom they've loved throughout their life and longed for and yearned for and worshipped and honored and, and, and glorified and praised and prayed to and cried to, they will be with him finally. <laughs> the recipient will receive a resurrection body suited for worship and the enjoyment of God. That comes later on. After glorification, later on comes that resurrection body. At some point, Jesus Man, he gives every person of faith, and actually all people receive a resurrection body, even unregenerate people who reject him. Their body is fashioned for torment. Ours is fashioned for worship. What an extraordinary thing to have a resurrection body. Can't wait to see what that's like. That's probably when the real abs come. No six-packs, 12-packs. I don't know. Nah, it's much better than that. In fact, we see... What that looks like when we look at Jesus after he rose from the dead, we get an image and a picture of what that's like. Dude could walk through walls. We can do that today, but then we go right to the ER, right? Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. A resurrection body is coming. The recipient will receive the new heaven and earth as their eternal inheritance. God is going to make all things new at some point in the future. What you see will be made barren, and he will redo it in such a way. And it is our inheritance. We get to spend our eternity in this new heaven and earth. I mean, there's just so much that comes. Look at all these things. And this just scratches the surface. All of these things are made available in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. In fact, the scriptures teach that they are exclusively available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The scriptures plainly teach He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And no one shall come to God unless it is through Him. What I've just said is available only comes through Jesus Christ. Allah can't give it to you. Buddha can't give it to you. Joseph Smith your works and earning and trying to earn points with God and good deeds aren't going to get you any of these things. They only come through Jesus Christ. He's the way, truth, and life. What is the difference between religion and the gospel? This is huge because there's massive confusion in and outside of the church today. I think this is an important question because of all this confusion. Martin Luther said that sinners 
are prone to pursue a relationship with God in one of two ways. The first is religion and the second is the gospel. Now I'm going to juxtapose religion with the gospel so we can see the differences between them because they are massive. Although some of us are confused, we don't know the differences. And I was a little startled as I read some of these things. Religion, beginning here, religion says that if we obey God, he will love us. That's what religion says. If we obey, if we do what he says, then he will love us. Obedience brings his love and acceptance in those things. The gospel says that it is because God has loved us through Jesus that we can obey. See the difference? Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. The gospel says, he already loves you, now you can obey. Huge difference between them. Religion says that the world is filled with good and bad people, right? That's what religion says. The world is filled with good and bad people. The gospel says that the world is filled with bad people who are either repentant or unrepentant. That's it. There's no good and bad. They're all bad. Everyone is a sinner. Every man, woman, child. Everyone is bad. In the eyes of God, the gospel just says, man, there are two classes of people. The repentant, those who believe, and those who don't. That's it. Neither good or bad. In fact, Christians are never referred to as good in the Bible. They're redeemed sinners. Big difference. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. Just trust in what you're earning. Trust in what you're doing. You gave a homeless person shoes the other day. Double points. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. The gospel says that you should trust in the perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and true, truly moral person who will ever live. Only he is good. Religion says you can be through all you do. Gospel says, nope, trust in Jesus. He's the only one that's good. You're not good. The goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts God gives, but rather God as the gift given to us by grace. I hope we, people are leaping in their soul when they hear that, you saints. The goal of religion is to get things from God. How prevalent is that in the church today? In particular movements. Always trying to get something from God. And usually the way you do it is through good obedience and good deeds and all those things. But the gospel says it ain't about what God can give you. It's about God himself. He gives himself to you. Huge difference. Religion is about what I have to do. Uh, religion, I've got all these things and all these rules and all these things i got to do and I've got my list and I'm going to start with number 941 this morning because yesterday ended at 940, uh, 940 and, you know, uh, uh, religion is about what I have to do, always about what I have to do. The gospel is about what you get to do. Big difference. Through the gospel, you get to serve God and to enjoy Him forever and to love fellow man and to proclaim the gospel and to, and to do these wonderful things. He invites you into His family to do these things. It's not about what you have to do. 
It's about what you get to do by His grace. You get to do these amazing things. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. The gospel sees hardship in life as sanctifying affliction that reminds us of Jesus' sufferings and is used by God in love to make us more like Jesus. Amen. Religion says, man, I can't believe that guy broke out with that illness. He must have screwed up in his religion. He must not be doing things right. He must not be obeying the right way. That's what religion says. Think in terms of the first century Jews, and it carried out before then and after that, that they attributed all illness and all these things to disobedience of God's law. They were the most religious people on the face of the earth. If that guy got leprosy, it's because he stole a loaf of bread. Doesn't matter, he's a sinner. He did something to cause the leprosy. That's what religion teaches. But the gospel says that those things exists for the purpose of changing us and transforming us, even though they're difficult and hard, that we would learn to abide in Christ and that we would be changed through that process. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. Hardship in life is school. Religion is about me. Religion is about the individual. Okay? It's all about me and it's all about what I'm doing and how I'm doing and then comparing myself to everyone else. And guess what? I seem to always be the best. I am so much better at this thing than Bruce. I just watch him and it's like, ha, I'm killing that guy. Religion is all about me. The gospel is all about Jesus. Huge difference. I love this one. It's in your bulletin. Religion goes right along with that. Religion says do. Do things. Do more things. Earn your way. Get those scales to tilt in favor of you by stacking up all those good things on it. Religion says do. Jesus says done. I did it. Not you. It's finished. It's complete. Have faith in me and you receive all that I did. What a marvelous difference. Religion says do, Jesus says done. Scriptures talk about ceasing your striving and trying to earn. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please Him. Right? I just don't. I've been doing all these good things. I know once in a while I do some really stupid things. I'm not really sure where I'm at with God. But I'm somewhat confident that when I stand in his presence, he'll be so pleased with the, the scale on this side because it's just full of all my goodness. And this side, this is a little nasty. There's an uncertainty that comes through religion because you really don't ever know where you stand with God. The gospel leads to a certainty about my standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus on my behalf on the cross. He did things perfectly. And sacrificed himself on the cross to exchange his perfection for our sin and imperfection. And so all we got to do is look to the cross. All we got to do is remember what Jesus did. And we know we have a perfect standing with God. What great assurance this, that person, the recipient of the gospel, receives. 
And then lastly, religion ends in either pride, because I think I'm better than other people, and we know we do that, or it ends in despair because I continually fall short of God's commands. Either Religion always produces either of two things, pride or despair. It never produces anything beyond those, pride or despair. The gospel ends in humble and confident joy because of the power of Jesus at work for me, in me, through me, and sometimes in spite of me. Now, as we can see, religion and the gospel are antithetical in every way. They are opposites. Ultimately, when you boil them down, religion comes from below and the gospel comes from above. In terms of coming to know God who is above and inheriting heaven which is above, which one should we believe? Man's religion which comes from below or the gospel which comes from above? If we're trying to receive what comes from above, why would we not believe the message that comes and says, here's how you get it? You'd have to be a fool to believe in man's religion, right? Absolutely. But the world was, is absolutely filled with fools. I spent the majority of my life as one of these fools. People choose religion over the gospel all the time. Why? Because they are addicted to self-honor and they love to try to earn points with the big guy in the sky who is surrounded by chubby little cherubs who sit on poofy little clouds and pluck little harps. That's our view of God. And somehow we're trying to earn our way and maybe we'll get a cloud. So much for a glorified body if you just turn into one of those chubby little cherubs. I have never taken harp lessons either. That's people's fantasy view of it. Earning is the default mode of every human heart. Every human heart, because of sin, thinks in terms of trying to earn their way. It is our default mode. We try to earn our way with people so they'll love us and care about us or glorify us and pat us on the back. We try to earn our way with God so he'll love us and receive us and welcome us into heaven. And yet no man, woman, or child has ever been saved through religion or earning. Not even the ancient Pharisees who were probably the most religious people of all time. So you need to listen carefully, okay? You've been listening well. You've been very attentive. Apart from the gospel, there is no forgiveness of sin. Apart from the gospel, there is no peace with God. Apart from the gospel, there is no righteousness. Apart from the gospel, there is no Holy Spirit. Apart from the gospel, there is no resurrection power. Apart from the gospel, there is no adoption. Apart from the gospel, there is no salvation or the joy of salvation. Apart from the gospel, there is no grace and mercy. Apart from the gospel, there is no sanctification. Apart from the gospel, there is no glorified body. Apart from the gospel, there is no presence of the Lord in the kingdom of heaven. Apart from the gospel, there is no resurrection body that is suited for worship and the enjoyment of God. Apart from the gospel, there is no new heaven and no new earth for all eternity. Jesus Christ provides all of these things. And that is why we call his work what he provides the good news or the gospel. Without him, we stand condemned under the wrath and judgment of God with hell as our eternal destination. 
We cannot earn our way no matter what. If we could, then Jesus would not have come to earth to live a perfect life, to earn that righteousness, to die on a cross, to pay for our sin, to be buried, to settle the accounts, and to rise in three days according to the scriptures so that sinners could be saved. He came to save us because we cannot save ourselves. Do you understand why he came? The Bible and history testified to the fact that he came. Not just the Bible, but history says he came and did these things. There are sources out there that point to these things. Jesus came and did what he did, period. And you need him. And I need him. And so does every person in the world. Because without him, we are doomed. Now, how does a person experience what Christ has to offer? What must he or she do? I've referenced it a few times. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, we must what? Repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means to give up your religion and your self-effort. It means to stop trusting in yourself to stop trusting in others, and to stop trusting in anything else for the salvation of your soul and for your future. The next step is to believe the gospel. Once you've repented, it is to believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was raised on the third day, triumphant over sin, death, and all his enemies. Believe that only He can save you. Put your faith and trust in Him alone. Get rid of all the religion. Just turn from it. Believe in Him and Him alone. The Bible alone teaches that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Repent and believe this and you will be saved and given all that I've mentioned and more. That perfect person whom you've always wanted to meet and know and be loved by will finally be yours. You understand? Your spouse fails you, your friends fail you, your bosses fail you, your closest confidence fail you, confidants fail you. Everyone fails us. We're all sinners. We're all wrecked. We're all broken. And guess what? We're all looking for that perfect relationship. We're all looking for that perfect person who will not fail us, who will love us perfectly. And he'll be yours. He will be yours. Finally. Finally. Finally, he got the dad I always wanted. Finally. And he will be yours forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The early church father, Augustine, said, He who possesses God is happy. Piper added, not because God gives health, wealth, and prosperity, but because God is our soul's joyful resting place. 
Are you in the pursuit of happiness like most Americans? It's our American mantra. Well, guess what? You're not going to find it in health. You're not going to find it in wealth. You're not going to find it in prosperity. And I'll add, you're not going to find it in others. It's true that those things can satisfy you to some degree for a season, but it's fleeting. Health comes and goes. Wealth comes and goes. Prosperity comes and goes. Even if health, wealth, and prosperity remain for a period of time, they're still never enough, are they? You never have enough money. Never have enough friends. Never have enough possessions. Jumping from one thing to the next. We always want more or something else that we believe will finally satisfy us. If I just get one more thing. If I just find that perfect mate, that perfect spouse, that perfect friend. And yet others will disappoint us, betray us, hurt us, and pass away. Health and wealth and these things come and go. Only God can give you true and lasting happiness because only God is eternal. Only God is immutable, unchanging. Only God is unshakable. Nothing affects him. Only God is perfectly loving and perfectly holy. God himself is the true resting place for our soul, and he is the true source of our joy and happiness. Our souls will never be at rest. They will never be satisfied until they are secured in God by the person and work of Jesus Christ through faith. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus cried out, and he cries out even today because his word is living. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you religious people who've been trying to earn your way. Come to me, all you, and I will give you rest. What does that mean? It means what you're doing right now is not going to give you rest. Your religion's not going to give it to you. This wondrous and glorious gospel is what Paul and Barnabas preached in Derby. And through their preaching, the text says that many disciples were made. I think I'll stop there. I'll save the rest for next week and we'll continue. I think it'd be fitting for me to maybe provide you with an invitation to repent and believe. I'm not going to lead you in some weird prayer. Are you in Christ? Have you turned from your good deeds and your religion and all the things that you think are helping you and securing something for you? Are you have you turned from trusting in others? and Have you tr turned from trusting in yourself and thinking that you're actually a good person or that you can actually become a better person, more suitable and more pleasing to God and to others? You can't, friend. Have you turned from that self-sufficiency and that self-worship and that religion of works? Have you turned away from it he said, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ who is perfect and who did things for me that I could never do for myself through any of that stuff. 
and I'm going to believe in him, and I'm going to believe in what he did at the cross. He paid for my sin debt, and I'm going to believe that he was buried, and I'm going to believe that he was raised in three days, conquering victory, He just uh, ultimate victory over sin and death. And I'm going to believe that I'm going to receive all that Pastor Phil has talked about today and a bag of chips. There's so much more to come. I just scratched the surface. Is that who you are today, friend? You turned away from yourself and turned to him. That's my prayer for you. And I, I know there's a tremendous amount of people in this room that have done that, who have repented and believed in that mighty gospel. And if you haven't, I just want to encourage you to do so. Don't tarry. Don't go home and evaluate and try to rethink how you might be able to earn a better standing with God. It's not going to happen, man, no matter what you do. Jesus Christ is your only hope, friend. He's your only hope. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who repents of their sin and self-sufficiency and believes in him will be saved, shall be saved. I can promise you that because the Bible promises that. Not because Pastor Phil's got, he's got figured something out here. The Bible makes that promise to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Your life, you do that, your life will change dramatically and it will begin to be changed and transformed every day and every moment. And you will receive what we talked about. So I want to urge you to do that. Let me just pray for us before we have communion. Father, Communion really symbolizes this tremendous victory and that Jesus won on the sinner's behalf, on behalf of me and others, Lord, that he died and shed his blood. His body was broken for sinners like me. The marvelous thing he's done that only he could do. I'm so thankful that you sent him. I'm so thankful that he came and that he was faithful and that he accomplished all that you set before him. And it was his great joy to do so. It was his joy to please you and to glorify you and to worship you and to honor you, to sacrifice, to offer up himself, to be mistreated, to be beaten to a pulp, to be, have a razor-sharp set of thorns put on top of him. He did all those things for the joy that would come through obeying you and worshiping you. For the joy of receiving unto himself a church, a bride. Oh, what a marvelous thing he has done. You have made a way for us, Christ Jesus. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would redeem those in this room and in this community that, that do not yet know you. We want to celebrate what you've done in communion time and take the elements worshiping you and praising you for what you've done that we would keep in mind that it is a finished work. You say to us so clearly right in this moment, religion says do, beloved. I say done. Communion represents the finished work of you, Jesus Christ. It's done. It's sealed. It's over with. We simply need to believe it. So thank you for this time of communion, Lord Jesus. May you be glorified and worshipped. And may those who are here this morning who have yet to put their faith and trust in you, may they know that they just need to 
witness what the saints do during this time, that communion is, is for your bride, it's for your church. And I pray that maybe some in this room that maybe don't know you yet would come to faith right now and celebrate communion for the first time in the truest sense. I took communion as a child, didn't know why. And maybe some here would come to know you now. They put their faith and trust in you. And they could take of these elements reflecting upon what you did and rejoicing in what you did. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.